SiriusXM presents Stanford Pathfinders. Stanford has 225,000 alumni living all over the globe in 151 countries. And they're some of the most amazing people you would ever want to meet. A show about how the graduates of Stanford University are changing our lives and the world. We'll hear very interesting things from business leaders in the technology sector, but well beyond that. The worlds of politics, entertainment, business, and beyond. Inspiring stories from America's innovation heartland. It's a place where people look to the future, not to the past, where they don't rest on their laurels. Think about the gold rush. Think about Stanford being formed in the late 1800s. And then Stanford was the beginning of Silicon Valley. And the ethos of Silicon Valley is deeply embedded in the Stanford spirit. It's a spirit of innovation, experimentation. It's a spirit of being willing to try new things and risk failure as long as you fail forward. Welcome to Stanford Pathfinders. A strategist, communications expert. In many cases, it is persuasion. It doesn't have to be, but you're trying to influence people to an action or perhaps a different way of thinking in the corporate world, personal life, all the same. Author and coach explains how to communicate without freaking out. The experience you have and your audience has will be much more positive in the moment and will last longer in their memories afterwards. This week on Stanford Pathfinders, Matt Abrahams. Now, here's your host, Howard Wolf. No matter one's professions or interests, communications is vitally important in all that we do. So becoming a strategic communicator is consequently something we all should aspire to be. Today's guest on Stanford Pathfinders is Matt Abrahams, a communications professional who has forgotten more about this space than most of us will ever know. He's a consultant, a Stanford lecturer at the Graduate School of Business for the past nine years, and with continuing studies at Stanford for 15 years. And most importantly, he's a nationally recognized authority on this topic. Matt, welcome to the show. Excited to be here, Howard. Okay, so in addition to sharing the fact that we're both Stanford alums, I learned that we're both undergraduate psychology majors. So here's the most important question of the day. Can we both yes, agree sir. that psych is a great major for undergrads? Psych is an awesome major for <laughs> undergrads. I, I'd love to hear your story, how you came to psych. I, I am an accidental psych major. I, what I started. Does that mean? I started here as a pre-med. Yes. Uh, I took a really painful one-two punch from calculus and chemistry. So I, I got into the HumBio core, thinking that was another avenue for me. And they wheeled out good old Al Hasdorf. And sure. I heard for the, the first time about psychology and fell in love with it. And from that moment on, switched majors, really passionate and enjoyed it very much. Well, so my story is yeah. similar. I was a freshman, first quarter, I take psychology one with Phil Zimbardo. Of course. He walks into class. He's wearing a black cape. He does a pirouette, like a twist in the front of the class. His cape goes all around. And I turned to the guy next to me. I said, I'm in. That was Excellent. it. And I never looked back. Zim was great. <laughs> I, I ended up doing some Tiang for him. He's a great, fascinating guy. All right. So what originally attracted you to Stanford as a student? Like, where'd you grow up and why Stanford? So I'm a local boy. I, I grew up in Los Gatos, uh, a stone's throw from here. And I have always been passionate about learning and collaborating. And, and you can't get a better place to go as a student to learn about collaboration and to learn from people who are just very diverse and bright. I, I was attracted immediately to this place. And now you find yourself as a lecturer mm -hmm. at the Graduate School of Business. How'd that happen? Well, it's a long and winding road, but I, I've always been passionate about teaching. I taught 
uh, in lots of different places. But before that, I had a whole career in high tech and saw how important communication was. But when my wife and I started our family, I wanted to be more available and wanted to go back to what I was truly passionate about. And I started teaching actually in the continuing studies program here. And I've taught there for 15 years. Love that. Love the students. We have a wonderfully robust continuing studies program here at Stanford. Online and in person. For alumni and others who live in the community. Absolutely. I have students from all over the world who take my online classes, students who drive far and wide to get here. And then I, uh, through that, got an opportunity to teach at the business school and I've been there nine years. Okay, so you are the ultimate communications professional. Uh, I don't know about with that. With a focus on strategic communications. <laughs> so let's start at the very beginning. What is strategic communications and how'd you get into this field? I can remember almost the day that I got interested in strategic communication. Uh, there was one afternoon where my mother just went ballistic with all the crap my brother and I had around our house. And she said, we are having a garage sale. And I grew up in an area where there were lots of garage sales. So my mother instructed us very specifically when we wrote our sign that said garage sale to misspell it. And you know, Howard, if you add a B to garage, you get garbage. So we were the only family in our neighborhood having a garbage sale. On purpose. On purpose. We sold more stuff than anybody else. Why? Well, my mom will tell you the reason we sold more is because the garbage signs stood out from all the other normal garage signs. I think people thought we were stupid and they'd get a better deal. But it doesn't matter. <laughs> we sold the stuff we needed to. And in that moment, I learned how communication can actually influence people. And to get to your first question about strategic communication, that's really the definition. It's influencing people towards a goal you have, a business goal, a personal goal, a political goal. And that's what we study in the class. So it's communications with a purpose in mind. A purpose is it in persuasion? In many, time, in many cases, it is persuasion. It doesn't have to be. But you're trying to influence people to an action or perhaps a different way of thinking in the corporate world, personal life, all the same. And where does storytelling fit into all this? Because storytelling is a big topic these days. Everywhere Absolutely. you go, everyone talks about learning how to be a storyteller. Absolutely. And at the business school, we have multiple classes that focus on storytelling. It's, it's a mechanism through which you can get your ideas across. To me, a, a story is nothing more than a structured way of communicating. It's a logical flow of information. And we are designed and wired as humans to receive stories and remember stories better than we are bullet points and PowerPoint slides. So it's critical to be a good storyteller if you have important messages to get so across. So I've heard this. You just said something that's very interesting to me because I've heard this before, that if you deliver facts and mm -hmm. figures to people, they will not remember those. Mm -hmm. If you tell them a great story, they'll never forget it. Absolutely. Is that true? Yeah, there's a lot of research to say that. We, we are wired to remember story. We, episodic memory is called episodic because it's a series of episodes. And typically, stories have emotion. They have vivid detail. And those really resonate and stick with us. Facts are dry. And often, we do a big data dump where we give lots of facts at once. So it's just hard to digest it all. All right. So here at Stanford, every fall, we have something called Reunion Homecoming Weekend. Mm -hmm where we welcome back 10,000 Stanford undergraduate alumni and their family members. Yeah, I've tried to park on that weekend. <laughs> it's a tough time to <laughs> yeah. park. And, and we offer a whole host of what we call classes without quizzes, mm -hmm. which are alumni education mm -hmm. um, offerings by faculty and lecturers. Mm -hmm. And a few years back, you gave a talk called Think Fast, Talk Smart. Mm -hmm. and, and in it, you distinguish between planned and spontaneous speaking. So help us understand the difference between these two types of communication and why it matters. Right. Planned versus spontaneous. 
So plant speaking is what most people think about when they think about high stakes communication. I've got a big PowerPoint I've got to deliver. I'm doing a keynote. I'm giving somebody an award. But if you think about it, Howard, most of our communication in our personal lives and professional lives is spontaneous. It happens on the spot. Your boss asks you to stand up and introduce somebody who just walked into the room. You're asked to give feedback at the end of a meeting. And yet we don't often focus on how to become better at those spontaneous speaking opportunities. And that talk in particular was really designed to help highlight how we can do that. And it was born out of something that you and I and anybody who's ever been a student remembers the cold call. We found at the business school that many of our students, amazingly brilliant students, could not respond in the moment when cold called by a professor. So the idea was to help them with tools that they can use to feel more comfortable and confident in the moment. Is the issue fear? Part of it is fear. Part of it is really approach and over-evaluation. People in spontaneous speaking situations want to give the right answer, the best answer. And that puts so much pressure on us that it's hard to give any answer. So part of the way to deal with spontaneous speaking is to change your approach. Rather than striving for greatness, just strive to get it done. You know, I have the audacity in my strategic communication classes to stand up in front of Stanford MBAs and say, dare to be dull, just get it done. The room is silent. Well, right, you can't because, hear anything because they're used a, to... This is a business school that's the toughest business school yeah. in the world to get into. Yep. 6% admit rate. If you get into the Stanford Graduate School of Business, you've achieved something. So the idea that you would say to them, dare to be dull, dull, yes. which is an mediocre. Improv saying, yeah, an improv saying that means just get it done, be mediocre. And the beauty of that approach, though, Howard, is when you take the stress off yourself, you can actually be amazing. It's the pressure to be amazing that causes people to choke up. And this works? Absolutely. Absolutely. It works in professional sports. It works in everyday communication. It works with our students here. So this is our head getting ahead of ourselves and getting in our way. Exactly. For many people who are very successful, they're very good at quick evaluation, judging, figuring out what's the right thing to do. And that set of skills can help you in many ways. But in certain spontaneous speaking situations, it can work against you. So it's about developing other muscles. We're really strong in our ability to evaluate and judge. We apply that in certain situations, and we need to learn how to allow ourselves just to get things done in other situations. So you've written a book called Speaking Up Without Freaking Out. Is this what you're talking about in that book? Partially. Partially, yeah. This book is for any type of communication, planned or spontaneous. Okay, which is more difficult, planned speaking or spontaneous speaking? I don't know if it's one or the other. It depends on the circumstances. Often, planned presenting is very high stakes, big audiences, bright lights, lots of microphones. And that brings its own daunting challenges. But spontaneous speaking can also have high consequences to it as well. So I don't think it's one or the other. It's about being agile and preparing yourself to deal with both. All right, so let's stay on the topic of spontaneous speaking. What other tips would you give to people? Okay, so dare to be dull. So set the bar really, really low and you're bound to (laughs) eclipse it, right? I don't know if I'd give the advice that way. I would say simply get out of your own way. So a part of it is the approach. Many of us, take a QA and a situation. When somebody asks you a question, most people aren't, oh, I'm so excited to be getting questions. Most people feel like, I hope I know the answer. I hope I get it right. I hope this person doesn't attack me. So the first thing is to change your approach and see it as an opportunity. Take the pressure off of yourself. The second step in advice I give is really listen. Understand what's needed in the circumstance. Most of us listen just enough to get the gist of what somebody's asking and we miss nuance and detail. If you're going to 
answer a question spontaneously, gives feedback in the moment, you need to really appreciate what needs to be done in that moment. And then finally... Is that, that's both what they're asking for and what, who the audience is. Absolutely. Okay. And, and any nuance that's in there. All right. right. So if your boss just got beat up in a meeting and then she asks you, you know, how'd that go? You might have to think about the best way of framing that answer to support her, but also give direction. And then finally, you need to structure your answer in a way that can be really meaningful. What does that mean? A lot of us, when we speak, we just develop our content as we're saying it. But yes. if you actually have a structure in advance, it makes it easier for your audience to process. But how do you have a structure in advance if it's spontaneous? Well, good question. So think about athletics. Think about music. A, a jazz musician, when he or she plays their music, they have ideas about what chords go together, what notes go together. And then in the moment, they're just assembling them. The same thing with communication. You have ideas about how certain things flow. So for example, we have a very common structure, problem, then solution. So if somebody poses something, you can frame it instantly into the problem and then the solution. So it, it's very much like what you see in athletes and musicians. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's move from spontaneous to planned speaking. Now, mm -hmm. most people I know are fearful beyond description <laughs> yes. of giving an important speech, mm -hmm. right? That's what they think of a speech, not a yep. talk, a speech. Right. So give us some thoughts about how to best approach that if fear is one of the things that you're trying to tackle. You're absolutely right. Fear is something that looms large for many folks in high stakes communication situations. And when I look at fear, and I help a lot of people become more confident in their communication, I divide it into two categories. They're the symptoms, that's what you physically or mentally experience, and then the sources, the things that make it more uh, challenging. So when it comes to symptoms, I'll give you a few examples. Many people feel a rapid heart rate and begin speaking really fast. So a, a wonderfully easy thing to do is to just take some deep belly breaths. I don't know if you've ever done yoga or Tai Chi, but those deep breaths can slow that heart rate down. If you shake a lot, doing big, broad gestures when you start out, even stepping towards your audience if you're standing, engages big muscles and it gives that adrenaline a place to go. And if you're like me, who blushes and perspires when I get nervous, holding something cold in the palm of your hands can actually cool you down. Just like when you have a fever, you put a cold compress on your forehead, the palms of your hands are thermoregulators for your body too. So do you do that? Absolutely. Before so what do you I speak, put in your hands? A cold bottle of water right before I speak. In fact, right on the table in front of me is a glass of cold water. And I don't know if you noticed before we started speaking, I, I picked it up and held it. You've done this in reverse, Howard, on a, on a Cold day, have you ever held warm tea or sure. coffee and feel sure. how it warms you up? We're yes. just doing it in reverse, cooling ourselves down. Because you know that you're probably going to overheat as you speak. Absolutely. I know that part of when I get nervous, I, I get hot. And many but, people do. Your blood pressure goes up when you speak, just like you're an athlete or, or just like you're doing some kind of exertion. So you want to calm and cool yourself down. You're the ultimate strategic communications professional. Mm -hmm. You don't get nervous when you speak. Everybody gets nervous. There's always a situation you can have. And I've learned over, the, over my career to be less nervous, but I'll give you an example. Every year, there's an academic conference of lecturers and professors of communication at top business schools. And when I have to speak in front of those folks, I get super nervous. Well, of nervous. course you do, because that's, all, that's what they do. I mean, that's- Absolutely. That, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Now, the funny thing is, how the, those presentations, when, when professors of communication talk to each other, they're awful. We don't follow any of the advice we give. It's highly <laughs> ironic. All but right, I so, do get nervous. So you, you talked about, about how to calm yourself down, mm -hmm. whether you know you take deep belly breaths, put yeah. your hands out to sort of keep you from shaking, right. put cold in your hands to be able to cool you down. But what about the actual speaking? So when you actually speak, what you can do to yes, be less nervous? Yes, planned speeches. Right. So 
Part of it has to do with addressing the sources of anxiety. So let me give you an example of a source. Many of us, when we are presenting, we feel that we are being judged. And you are. You're being evaluated. So there are a couple ways to manage that evaluation. First, do what athletes and musicians do. Visualize yourself doing the presentation, speaking in the meeting before you actually do it. So a couple days before, visualize it. What we know from sports psychology is it increases people's sports performance when they visualize. And the same thing is true with speaking. You desensitize yourself because in your mind's eye, you've seen it. In fact, you can even get a virtual reality app that you put in a pair of goggles, you load it on your phone, and you can see an imaginary audience. It's an audience of avatars. They can be super large. It can be a small one-on-one interaction. And you can practice. And by desensitizing yourself, you feel more confident in the situation. I do this before I speak in many, in many cases. Excellent. Excellent. Another thing you can do, and I've seen you do something similar to this uh, when you speak, you can distract your audience, get them engaged in something else. Take a poll, have them turn to somebody next to them, ask a question. In that initial time when you speak is when most people are nervous. And if you get your audience engaged in something else that's relevant to your topic, you give yourself a couple seconds to collect your thoughts. And it's a great way to get the audience involved and engaged. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. Okay. So talk to me about verbal graffiti. I know what the word (laughs) verbal means and I know what the word graffiti means, but I've never heard this term verbal graffiti. Um, Let me think, you know, like I think verbal, you hear what I'm doing? Those are all verbal tics. So verbal graffiti is simply filler words that we add in that detract from what we're trying to say. So is this like um and uh? Ums and uhs, likes, I mean, the one I I hate the most is honestly, because it implies everything you said before might not have been honest. Okay, so let's talk about that, because this is is counsel and guidance I give to everyone on my staff. Mm -hmm. Don't ever say, honestly, blankety blank, because it makes everyone question everything you've set up until that point. Do you agree? Totally agree. Then why do we do that? So we feel that when we're on the spot, we need to fill the space. We are a speaker and speakers need to speak. And pausing is really hard. Silence is hard. So we rely on these catchphrases that, that we just pick up as we speak. So we need to train ourselves to become aware that we're doing it. You can't change something you don't know you're doing. So you need to be notified by somebody like your boss, or there are even apps that can notify you. They're, they're really fun. They'll buzz and beep when, when you say certain key words that you want to eliminate. And another way to manage these is through breath. We tend to be bothered most by verbal graffiti, filler words that come at the end of phrases before we say something else. So if we can train ourselves to land phrases, and you're an expert at this in your podcast, you can hear yourself doing this, that at the end of your questions or statements, you land a phrase so you're completely out of breath. So you have to inhale. You can't say anything when you inhale. So you build in a pause and you eliminate filler words that come in between your phrases. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. This is Stanford Pathfinders. I'm Howard Wolf. More with Matt Abrahams. Strategic communications expert next on Sirius XM. This is Stanford Pathfinders. I'm Howard Wolf, and I'm speaking with Matt Abrahams, strategic communications expert. All right, so help us understand the things that communicators do that most likely damage their credibility in speaking. A lot of people do a lot of things that get in the way. Let's stay with words that people use. I am really bothered by hedging phrases. Words like kind of, sort of, I think. 
people in positions of power, people who are trying to establish credibility and assert themselves, diminish that when they say things like, I think we kind of should do this, instead of saying, but isn't we that should do this. Well, so this is an interesting thing. You had asked me about planned presenting. If I am up on a stage and I'm trying to convey my point of view, I think you need to be clear in your intent. Self-confident. Absolutely. In an interpersonal interaction, one-on-one, where I might want your opinion or I might want to lower my status relative to you, saying things like kind of and sort of help you. So it's one of these situations where we need to code switch. Depending on the situation, depending on my goal relative to you, I might use hedging terms. But in other circumstances, those work against us. And for most people, they're habit and they do it all the time. So I just want people to be aware. I'm all about turning habits into choices. So make the choice to use that term. Don't just do it because that's what you always do. Turning habits into into choices. choices. Into choices. We all have spoken the way we speak for a very long time. Let's learn new tools and then choose to use them or not with a purpose in mind. So when I started out in my job 18 years ago, Mm -hmm. I used to craft a beautiful text of a speech and then deliver the speech. Mm -hmm. And and then I started not doing that Mm -hmm. and instead just sort of writing down some notes Mm -hmm. and speaking extemporaneously, getting out from behind the lectern and using my physical, you know, my motions and what have you, using a lavalier mic Mm -hmm. as opposed to a handheld mic to be able to engage with the audience. Um, A... It was a lot less work because you didn't have to write a speech. But B, I'm not good at reading speeches. Yeah. I'm better at just speaking casually, extemporaneously, because that's right. what I've done my entire life. Talk to us about the difference between giving a speech and speaking. Yeah, so the big difference. So a lot of people write word for word, and then they feel they have to speak it. So we get into this challenge of memorization. And memorization is a big headache for many people. It actually causes more stress. It causes distance psychologically from your audience because you're focusing on the script rather than them. It also causes you to often speak in a written way rather than a conversational way. Right. And we know from a tremendous amount of research that conversational speaking is received more positively and remembered longer. So part of what we need to do is we need to make sure that we do exactly as you're saying, where we write an outline, create a map, have a structure, but don't worry about every single word in that structure. In fact, something I use and coach people to do is have your outline be a series of questions. If you were to look at my lecture notes, All they are are questions, and when I lecture, I am simply answering the unasked question of my audience. It connects me to them, makes me focused, and makes my communication sound more conversational. I've done this thing where I've tried to memorize a speech once Mm -hmm. before. It's the scariest thing in the world because you're fearful that if you miss a sentence, then you'll be totally off. Absolutely. And you'll be stuck and you'll just be looking at the, at the audience, mm-hmm. literally petrified and sort of stoned. Um, <laughs> so, so there's this other sort of um, counsel I got once, which is as follows. If you speak to a prepared text, the audience doesn't think that there's any risk involved. They can mm-hmm. see that you've got a text, mm-hmm. you're turning the pages, or you're on a teleprompter. They know it's, you know, whatever. If you get out in front of the lectern mm-hmm. and you speak without a text... It's sort of like going to NASCAR. They're waiting for the crash, right? I mean, he's going to forget or he's not going to know what to do. And so they're more interested. Is there any validity to that? So I would like to think that when you get out from behind the lectern and you're moving around, you're not being engaging because people are waiting for the crash. You're being engaging because you're actually connecting with the people. You're walking amongst them. You're being able to respond to what you see. 
If you can be more engaging and compelling, the experience you have and your audience has will be much more positive in the moment and will last longer in their memories afterwards. So I encourage people to move around, to not rely on slides, to use their bodies through gesturing and eye contact to really connect. So it's less about the crash. It's more about the engagement. To do. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about Maya Angelou. Yes. Because we should always talk about Maya Angelou. <laughs> she famously said... I've learned that people will forget what you said, people forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. Does that quote inform how people should think about their communications? I think that quote is a great way to teach people about strategic communication. I believe all strategic communication needs to be goal-based, has to strive for some goal. And to me, a goal has three parts, information, emotion, and action. And the quote you just talked about highlights the piece that we spend the, less, the least amount of time on, which is emotion. It's about what you want your audience to know, feel, and do. How do you want them to feel? We've known for millennia when people were running around in togas that emotion mattered. We need to put emotion in our communication. So it's not just that I want you to know that my new business idea is a great idea. I want you to feel inspired. I want you to feel compelled. Fascinating. All right. So last question, a fairly comprehensive question. Um, as we draw to the, ends of our, the end of our conversation, can you share a few rapid fire best practices that our listeners can do today to become better communicators or perhaps refer them to resources that can help them in that regard? I've got five for you, Howard. Perfect. First, please, 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 you can join me, everyone can join me on a crusade to stop presentations and meetings from starting with, hi, my name is, today I'd like to talk about. That is boring and banal. Why? We need to, we need to jump right in. The most precious commodity we have today is people's attention. And if you don't get people's attention right away, you, you, you're already starting at a deficit. I tell everybody, start your presentations and meetings like a James Bond movie with action. <laughs> when you see a movie, an action movie, it starts with stuff that happens right away and you have to figure it out. Start your presentation with a question, a startling statistic, a quote. Get people engaged, then tell them who you are. Next, focus on transitions. People are so worried about what they're saying, they don't think about how they're moving from one place to the next. I learned this when I was a tour guide on this campus. The single riskiest place you have for losing people on a tour is when you move from one place to the next. Same thing in your communication. Take time to think about how you transition. Really important. Next, you need to make sure that if you're ever doing a virtual presentation, a Zoom, a webinar, WebEx, Skype, look at the camera. A lot of people look down at their notes or the other people's faces. So when they see you, it looks like you're looking at their shoes. You've got to look at the camera. Makes a big difference. Make sure, as we talked about just recently, get your audience engaged. One of the most powerful ways to engage an audience is, is to ask them to imagine or what if or think back to when. By engaging them in that thought process, they're with you. They're part of that conversation. So rhetorical questions like that where you just sort Absolutely. of throw it out. Absolutely. And vivid language on top of it adds a lot. And finally, if not most importantly, Always be in service of your audience. It's not what you want to say. It's what they need to hear. The best communicators focus on the needs of the audience rather than their own needs. So when you're preparing a speech or a talk, yeah. is that where you should start? Absolutely. First thing you have to ask yourself is who's the audience and what do they need? So you have to do reconnaissance and reflection about them. And then you begin to think about what's my goal for them and how best can I structure the message? Wonderful. Matt, thank you so much for being on the show. It was Great experience, Howard. It's always nice to be around a fellow psych alum. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening to Stanford Pathfinders on SiriusXM. Listen to this and other episodes anytime on demand with the SiriusXM app.